I just want to, be, before I pray and before we get into the message, I just want to say how good it is to be back with you. Last week, you know, we were here and we shared a little bit about what happened on our sabbatical and what that was all about, and that was wonderful and that was good. And it, and it made the end of uh, the sabbatical more concrete, being with you all again, but even more so this week, writing a sermon and now being back up here this morning. And as I was looking over to everything and prepping, uh, it occurred to me that the 16 weeks, you know, 15 weeks of sabbatical and then last week, 16 weeks without preaching is the longest time, continuous time without preaching in at least 15 or 16 years for me. Uh, so... It was both a gift in that it, uh, it time of rest and rejuvenation, but then also just a gift in an affirmation of identity, because uh, I am excited to be back with you all. I'm excited to be back here and to be preaching again, uh, to be exploring God's word with you and trying to figure out uh, what that means for us and how we should live. So uh, just, just really grateful to be here in this moment. And so with that said, before we get into God's word, let me offer a word of prayer. Father, may your word be our rule, and your spirit be our guide, and above everything, may Jesus Christ be our chief concern. Even so, we pray. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Genesis chapter 1. We're going to do some reading this morning. Part of the reason, if, you know, if you've been here for any length of time, you know that I like to start in Genesis. Part of the reason that I like to start in Genesis is I believe the beginning of a story helps us understand the rest of the story. It's like if you show up to a movie late and you don't quite understand who the characters are and what's going on, that you just don't get your mind around the plot and you're asking your neighbors lots of questions and all of that. So one of the reasons I like to start Genesis is just so that we get the story right. Where is the story heading? Who are the characters and what's going on? So Genesis chapter 1, starting at verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be a vault. Think of a high ceiling. Let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky. And there was evening and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let the dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and he gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years, and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. 
And God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth so across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the waters in the sea and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said that the land produced living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This... This is the creation story. This is the story that has been handed down from generation to generation of how God brought forth the world that you and I inhabit. It is a world that is full of wonder. Stars and planets and moons and constellations that light up the sky. Of majestic mountains and of rippling brooks. Of animals that capture our imagination and foster stories and fairy tales and imagination. This is the world that we live in. And it's not just good. It's very good. And it's into this world that God places us. God uh, places us, his divine image bearers, those who are to look like God, those who are to rule on his behalf, those who have been given authority to act as his ambassadors and to do what God intends with the creation. God places us into the garden and God breathes his very breath, his ruah, into us that we might have life and fulfill this call to be image bearers. This is the 
creation story, and it goes on. Genesis chapter 2, starting at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought, it to, brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So into this world that God has created, this world filled with wonder, this world into which humans are placed as divine image bearers, we see that God has a unique relationship with the man and the woman. We see that God walks in the garden with them. We see that God talks with them, that God gives them specific commands, that God is attentive to their needs and recognizes that it is not good for a man to be alone. And so God creates a suitable helper, one to come alongside, one to complete, one to, to foster intimacy with. God then took this man and a woman around the garden, showed them the different aspects, called them to take responsibility for this garden, to work the garden, to take care of it, to guard the garden. God, not only that, but then also gave them the raw materials of the garden and said, listen, listen, you can do something with this. You can make something. You can invent. You can cultivate. You can create that which I did not. Use these resources to do something. This is what we call the cultural mandate, and it's from these passages. And so we see three things here in terms of relationships in this opening story of the Bible. One, God and humans have a very unique relationship full of intimacy, full of knowing one another, full of needs being met. Two, we see a very unique relationship between the man and the woman. For they were naked and they knew no shame. The world was as it should be, right? Oh, okay, we're dry this morning. It is like nobody's... Look under the light. Okay, all right, yeah, all right. Okay, so the man and the woman are in the garden, and they know each other, and they're intimate, they're vulnerable. There's no masks. There's no pretense. There's no pretending to be different with one another. They themselves are on full display. This is who I am, and there is acceptance. There is belonging. There is knowing, and there is no shame. And then... The man and the woman have a unique relationship with the creation. For the man had to put 
privilege of naming the animals, which is a sort of exercise of authority, right? To name something is to recognize it, to see it, and then to exercise authority over it. But it isn't to lord that authority over it, but rather it's in, in relationship with, in harmony with. This is fully the world as it's supposed to be. But we know what happens next in Genesis chapter 3. Tempted by the thought of becoming like God and knowing good from evil, the man and the woman disobey God, and the perfect world, the world that's supposed to be, is ruined. Sin enters the world. Death enters the world. The perfect relationship between God and humans is now fractured. Shame enters between the relationship between the man and the woman. And they feel the need to cover up, to hide themselves, to not let all of themselves be seen by the other. And a certain kind of enmity and fear creeps in between man and creation. And so from this point forward, from Genesis 3 onward, the Bible becomes a story of restoration. And all the different parts of the Bible and all the different kinds of literature, the history the narratives, the laws, the poems, the letters, all of those aspects fall under the narrative or the story of God restoring what was lost. All of them have one thread that weaves them all together. It's this. God is going to fix it. You see, we as Christians believe that there is coming a time in which God is going to restore the world where what's broken is going to be mended. What's been separated will be put back together. What is now filled, relationships that are now filled with enmity will find peace. We believe that God is repairing what's broken, and we believe that this is happening in the person of Jesus Christ. In Jesus, God reconciles to himself those who rebel. In Jesus, God makes the glory of his love visible. In Jesus, we find God's love for the poor, the marginalized, and the oppressed. Those for whom the brokenness of the world has put its boot on their neck. God says, I am on their side. I have come to rescue them. In Jesus, we find God's intimate involvement with with the world that he created. That God is not far off, but he's still intimately connected with what's happening here. Intimately attuned to the struggle to the pain, to the frustration that you and I experience on a regular basis. In Jesus, we find hope that all of creation has as the new Adam is revealed in Jesus. In Jesus, we're reminded that this world matters. Why? Because God took on flesh. This world matters. And in Jesus and in his resurrection of the body, not the resurrection of his soul, not the resurrection of his spirit, but the resurrection of his body, we are reminded that our bodies matter. Yeah, so the Bible isn't some, some story about an individual in his life, and the Bible isn't a story of a, or isn't a book full of rules, and the Bible is not even close to being a philosophical musing on how to live the best life. The Bible is a story of how God is restoring all things. And as a story, it's written like almost every other good story that's out there. It's earthy. Right? It's earthy and it's messy. It, 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 it's 
It's full of the highs and lows of what it means to be human. The great surprises and the wonders of relationships. The joy that comes with unexpected births. But it's also filled with the lows of betrayal. Broken relationships and murder and abuse. The Bible is the best kind of story because it doesn't it doesn't try to shine up its main characters, but it keeps them very, very human. It doesn't paint its key groups of people, the Israelites in the church, it doesn't paint them as, as some sort of infallible group, but rather lets all of their flaws be seen very, very clearly. I mean, the fullness of humanity within the story of the Bible and the story of God's restoration is, is the fallenness, is the brokenness, is the the dirt and the grime and the thread that runs through it all is God is coming to fix it. Restoration is coming. This is our hope. I think we have to say that again. This this is our hope. And we have to label it as hope because we recognize that it's not yet here. The fix hasn't completely happened. Yes, yes, Jesus has come, but the world still needs a whole lot of fixing. On some level, all of us look out and we see that very, very clearly. I don't think there's anybody here who would deny the fact that the world does need fixing. And I don't care what what news station you turn into, what n- online things you read, if you people still get newspapers, if you still get newspapers, I don't care which ones you subscribe to. All of us recognize it. We hear parent, uh, children being separated from their parents and we struggle to get our minds around it. We hear of rich men who are able to use their money and influence to abuse young girls and get away with it for years. And it sickens us that that kind of evil exists in this world. We hear about the corruption of political leaders across the spectrum. And we see how people abuse power. We hear about another mass shooting. And another mass shooting. And another mass shooting. And then you watch a video of a car backfiring, backfiring in Times Square and the people scattering... Because their first thought is not that it is a car backfiring, but that it's a gunman in Times Square. And when you watch that video, you realize just how broken our world is. You recognize that something, you you can just feel it deep in your bones. Something about this is not right. And and, and the truth is, the truth is, is I think we've always felt this about the world that we live in. That something's just not quite right. that, 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 That there's something off about it. And we've known about it since we were young. Even as kids, we can sense when some sort of injustice has, been, has occurred in the world. Why did that sibling get to stay up later than me? Why did they get two cookies and I only get one cookie? I wanted the purple popsicle. How come they got it and I got an orange one? The worst. <laughs> Fairness. Which is a kind of justice. 
It's woven into our DNA. It's, it's not even just that we long for justice to happen. Like it's, it's, it's more than that, isn't it? Like we expect it. And so when it doesn't occur, when our expectation isn't met, man, that's the, that's the point at which we grind against it. That's the point at which we step back and we go, what in the world is going on? What kind of world is this where justice does not exist? How, how much longer can we put up with this? Which is just a fascinating thing to happen. Like it, or, or it's fascinating to stop and, and recognize that we have an expectation that justice would occur because why in the world would we expect that justice would occur? What evidence do we have that this world can be just. I mean, has anyone known this kind of world to exist, this world where fairness and justice dominate, where that is the main thing at work, the thing that rules the day? I mean, if, if we were just to stop and tally it up, don't we have more evidence that the world will continue to be and always has been unjust? I mean, honestly, the preponderance of evidence is on that side. History has borne it out again and again and again. Injustice pervades everything. And yet, every time we hear about of injustice, something in us says, this isn't right. And we expect and we hope and we long for it. The world I mean, it's such a, such a part of our imaginations and our thinking that it's almost like we believe in this dream world, right? I mean, doesn't it seem like a dream world where justice would reign, where that would be the defining nature of how things operate? It seems like a dream world, at least it does to me. N.T. Wright, who's a uh, theologian, says that this, this idea of justice is one of the echoes of a voice. Right? That there's this voice that whispers in the ears of our souls. This voice that whispers coming from the mouth of one who is deeply concerned with our world and, and deeply concerned about you and me. Concerned about this world such that the one who whispers watches over and sustains the one who whispers is concerned with us, not just, not just our future self and not concerned with our past self, but, but recognizing, like, is concerned with those two parts of who we are, our past and our future self, because those meet in our present self. And this voice, the one who whispers this voice, cares infinitely and deeply for us presently, right now, in this place. And the whisper into the ear of our soul the brokenness of this world will be repaired I will put things to right now when we hear this voice I think we have three options option number one we hear the voice and we chalk it up to a fantasy world a fantasy world that we eventually just have to grow up and grow out of, right? It's not a real world. 
Come on, grow up, get real. And when we take that perspective, it leads us down this Nietzschean or Machiavellian path in which the pursuit of power becomes the primary thing because power is the only thing that has the power to shape mountains, to shift things, to change the world. And so we need power. And so we'll abandon what this fantasy world talks about. We'll abandon virtue and ethics and moral because we'll be willing to compromise because if we can get power or if we can at least get close to power, then we can begin to shift things in our direction or in the direction we think that it has to go for justice. But we can't just wait on that world because that's not the real world. Grow up, it's about power. That's option one. Option two is to hear the voice and to, to dream about that voice and what that voice is saying and to dream that it's possibly real. But to come to believe that that voice isn't talking about this world, but he's talking about that world. Another world, a different world. And so we just have to sit here and we have to bide our time Endure the injustice, strengthen our skin so that we can withstand the onslaught of this world and the unfairness of it. And we just have to get there. Our only hope is to escape from here to get to there because that's, that's what the voice is whispering in our ear. Option three is to hear the voice whispering going to put all this to rights. And not only do we believe it, but when we believe that that voice is not speaking about some other world, but this world. That it's not a dream to get beyond this or to escape this, but it's to, to see justice here in this place, to see restoration take root now in our lives, in our children's lives, grandchildren's lives and in our great grandkids' lives on on down the line. And to listen to this voice and to believe the voice in this manner is to, to join a company. It's a small company, I think, but it's a company of witnesses who have gone before us. People like Martin Luther King Jr. who famously said, I have a dream. And if you stop and listen to what his dream was, it sounds like a fantasy world in the 1960s. But I have a dream. And dream may feel like a far-off reality, but I dream that it's coming. I dream that justice, that the long arc of eternity is towards justice. I believe that it's coming. And he imagines a world where peace and harmony and unity, maybe they don't, maybe they don't reign, right? Maybe, maybe that's not the predominant thing, but we come to know them a little bit more. It's to join with people like John as he's on the island of Patmos and he begins to have this revelation of heaven coming down out of earth. And in that moment when heaven and earth meet, the dwelling place of God is with humankind. And at that moment, joy reigns because God takes his hand and wipes away every tear from every eye. And wholeness is realized. It's to join with a company of people like the prophet Isaiah who have this picture that one day every person is going to rest under their own vine and fig tree. It's this picture of everybody having their own plot of land, their own, their own thing that they're cultivating. They're, they're this, this picture of justice and flourishing together. 
And I want to explore this idea of justice and flourishing together just a little bit more. Somebody told, go short? Yeah, we'll see about that, Carol. Justice and, and, and so I want to d- explore these two terms. These are two Hebrew terms. One, mishpat, which means justice, right? It's where, whenever you see the word translate, not whenever, but many times in the Old Testament, when you see the word translated justice, it's mishpat. And the other one is tzedakah. Mishpat, tzedakah. Tzedakah is a term righteousness, okay? Now, Often, when you see mishpat and tzedakah in the Old Testament together, and a lot of times it's, you see them together in uh, the Psalms and in the prophets, these two terms paired together. And they do that because they sort of build off of each other. Right? You, 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 it's almost a sense of you can't have justice without righteousness. I want to show you just a couple of places where this happens. Isaiah 121, see how the faithful city has become a prostitute. She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Slide them back. No, Amos 5. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-ending or never-failing stream. One more, Jeremiah 9, 24. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight declares the Lord. This is how justice and righteousness often appear in our Bible. Now, the thing that we have to do is we have to recognize that when these two terms are paired together, it sort of reorients our understanding of what justice is. It really begins, like, mishpat and tzedakah, they are something that's somewhat foreign to us. So most often when we think about justice, we think about justice in in the punitive sense. You have done something wrong or something wrong has occurred and a punishment has to be paid out. Right? Eye for an eye. This is the punitive sense of justice and most often this is what we think about. But when we have mishpat and tzedakah together, justice and righteousness, it's not so much the punitive sense, but we have to think about it much more holistically and much more restoratively. So it's this idea of being able to judge between right and wrong, good and evil, but not just judge, and then act according to that which is good. So when we think about mishpat and tzedakah, We're thinking about the ability to discern what is right and what is wrong, what is good, what is evil, and then to do that which is good. Let me try to play this out with an example. Uh, 18, somewhere between 18 and 20 years ago, I was in Chicago in December with my girlfriend at the time and her family. It's right around Christmas time. I can't remember if it was before Christmas or after Christmas. And everybody else was kind of taking a nap one day, and so I decided that I was just going to go kind of walk around downtown Chicago, kind of walk up and down the, the Magnificent Mile and just enjoy being in Chicago during a blustery, windy day. And so I'm walking down the street, and as I'm heading back to the hotel, I, I find myself walking behind a homeless man. And I look down at his shoes, and I see that his shoes are full of holes, the soles aren't sticking, I could see his socks through his soul, or I could see a sock through his shoes. And I had this thought, I need to give him my shoes. I mean, my heart broke 
for him. And I knew that I had another pair of shoes at, at the hotel. And even if I didn't, I knew I could, affo- I could, I could just go buy a pair of shoes. Like, I, was, I should give him my shoes. But then I started to list off all the reasons that I shouldn't. It's freezing. It's December. I'm going to have to walk a few blocks back to my hotel without shoes. And it's going to be cold. My feet probably aren't even the same size. What, w- what would I tell my girlfriend and her family? <laughs> yeah, I just gave my shoes to a homeless dude. So I didn't. I didn't give my shoes to him. And it ate me up for days. Now, did I do anything wrong? No, not really. I didn't break any laws. I, I, I didn't do, like, there's not, like, some code that had to do this. There's nothing to be punished over. But was Mishpat good? Did the Lord's justice and righteousness get lived out in that minute? Did I, did I discern what was good and what was evil, what was right and what was wrong, and did I act upon that which was good in that moment? No. You see, I know what God's desire is. That we would give to those who are in need. That we would care for the poor. For crying out loud, there's a verse about if you have two cloaks, give one to someone who is in need. And, and I didn't. Do you see how linking Mishpat and Sedeca together to be much more than just a punitive justice, do you see how it extends far beyond just doing what's right and what's wrong? It's about what's good. It's about what brings life. It's about what brings wholeness. It's about flourishing. It's about bringing shalom. It's about acting as God's divine image bearers that we were from Genesis chapter 1. It's to live into a relationship that is more harmonious, more harmonious with God, more harmonious with others, and more harmonious with our creation. This is what it's about, and this is what shalom is. Again, so often in the Bible, we just translate it as peace, and for us, our minds go to peace as the absence of conflict. But shalom is much more than the absence of conflict. Shalom is the place where that flourishing, where that harmoniousness, where that, where mishpat and sedekah are done. That's shalom. We can see this in verses 2. So Isaiah chapter 50, uh, 59 verse 8. Oh, not that one. Oh, we don't have, oh, that's right. I was going to turn to my Bible. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 59 verse 8. If you've got it, if not, 59 verse 8. Now, I'm just going to read a section of this to really get what's going on in this passage. You almost have to read the whole thing, but I'm just going to read a couple of verses here, starting at verse 8. The way of peace, the way of shalom, they do not know. There is no justice, there's no mishpat in their paths. They have turned them into crooked roads. No one who walks along them will know shalom. So Mishpat is far from us, and Sedeca does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness. For brightness, we, but, but all is darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Now, if you were to read this entire passage, what you would see here is that the prophet is, 
is saying that those who shed innocent blood and those who pursue evil schemes and those who are violent and those who harm the poor and the weak will not know shalom. That their behavior knocks them out of harmony with creation. It knocks them out of harmony with others. And it knocks them out of harmony with God. To experience shalom, one must walk in this path to faith. Over the course of the next 11 weeks, we're just going to ask and reflect on what does it mean to walk in Mishpat and Tzedakah. And we're going to look at this from a few different angles. I'm going to use the three categories of my sabbatical, creation, culture, and relationships, as sort of a jumping off to look at these things. How do we live in shalom, in relationship to creation, in relationship to others, to God, and to the world around us. And we're going to dream about what could be together. And we're going to listen to the voice, the voice that whispers, I, Jesus, I am bringing Mishpat and Tzedakah. Shalom is real. It's possible. I have come to lead you in experiencing shalom. So follow me. That's what we're going to do. Let's pray. Jesus, we give you thanks that you have come, that you've already given us a taste of what peace looks like came and as you died on the cross as you offer forgiveness we give you thanks for that and we recognize we recognize that that we don't pursue or need to pursue justice and righteousness in order to earn a spot in your good graces but we recognize that as a people who are being restored because of Christ as a people who are being fashioned more and more into his image by the work of the Holy Spirit, that we have to continually learn what it means to bear the divine image, to look like Jesus. And so we do that, recognizing that all the grace and all the mercy that we need to accomplish that has already been given to us through Christ and his blood. Give us now the courage, the strength, the dream, the imagination to begin to see new ways in which we can follow you in the world. And yet all our hope is on you. And so we pray, even so, come, Lord Jesus.